I love it. So Wednesday, if you have a 6th grader through 12th grader, Wednesday we meet at 7 till about 8.45 here in the church so you can drop your kids off and we'll uh, love on them here. So um, I get to teach a wonderful passage here about praise. And Matthew picked the greatest song anyone could pick talking about the art of celebration or the art of praise. So my question to open us is, if celebration is an art, how are you doing as an artist? Not how is God doing painting the picture of the world, but how are you doing in celebrating what God is doing, has done, will do in the world and in your own life? If you are an artist of celebration, how is your painting? That's what we're doing here. Paul has been teaching us through this book, theology, 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 theology. Last week was the exclamation point on theology that God is going to come back to the Jews and finish his work with the Jews. And then Paul busts out into a song. And that's what we're going to study through today is a song. Us redemption pastors get together 10 days in advance when we preach a passage. And this was the easiest one to come to terms with a big idea. What's the point of this passage? And every pastor agreed, theology leads to doxology. If you're not a church person, doxology was new to me. Theology leads to praise. Teaching about God, learning about God, studying God should lead to praise of God. Amen? I... I thought that was a great, great point, but as I was studying and getting ready for this message, I wanted to clarify with two words I want to throw into that statement. I'd say that good theology leads to limitless praise. Good theology leads to limitless praise. Everyone is a theologian. Our Mormon friends are theologians. Our Muslim brothers are theologians. Our atheist friends are theologians. Our God-hating family members are theologians. Everyone has a view and an understanding and a point of view and an opinion about God. Everyone's a theologian. The question is, are you a good theologian? The Apostle Paul was a good theologian, and for 11 chapters, he's been going through theology. Here's the God of the universe. Take a look. So just to help us as we jump into this passage, what is good theology? Just because I added a word there doesn't clarify it a ton. What is good, good theology? We are a Bible teaching church. We love Jesus. We love the Word. We love God. We love truth. But what is good theology? As I studied, I came up with four things that I think need to frame a good theology. The first one is good theology should be true. Simple enough, right? It should be true. What you're saying about God should be the truth. Mormons have a theology that's not true, that's not good theology. Is it true? The second one, is it exhaustive? Not exhausting, is it exhaustive? Meaning, does it cover every nook and cranny that God wants it to cover? Even the parts that are difficult. It's easy to talk about God's love. It's hard to talk about God's wrath. Is this theology exhaustive? As you saw as Luke preached through Romans 9, basically through most of 11, he covered a lot of stuff that is tricky. But good theology should be exhaustive. It should cover everything God wants us to cover. Not just the little nuggets we want to pull off and put on a mug. And then this is for my little people in the room. All my youngsters. It should be accessible. 
the reason I don't get a lot of like Eastern religions and all these ones that just take all this thought to even understand what they're starting on is it's not accessible to just everyday people. C student people, high school dropout people, fifth graders. Good theology should be true. It should cover everything God wants it to cover, but it should be accessible. How do I know that's true? Because Jesus spent a lot of time with kids, and he taught kids, and kids understood him, and they got him. Good theology should be accessible. And then lastly, it should be, this is where Paul lands in this passage here, it should be transcendent. What is transcendent? It means it's beyond comprehension. It means it exceeds our limits. So you should teach true theology. It should be exhaustive. It should be accessible. But then as you take a step back, as Paul did over everything he just said, Romans 1 through 11, he looks at it and he's like, man, this is far beyond me. I just wrote most of the theology that's going to frame the churches for the next thousands of years, and I can't even get my mind around this. It's transcendent. What? This is God? There's a, just a word of warning. A lot of like younger, newer people like to camp out on God's transcendence because it's real vague and feelings-based and hee, which young people like. I remember when I got saved at 18, a couple of the first books put in my hands were books written by people who I would never touch now. One guy named Peter Rawlins wrote a book called How Not to Speak About God. And he's kind of a newer, hip guy who kind of takes God and then muddies him up so that you don't really know. There's no concrete anything. It's just kind of vague feelings. And he makes this God that's so, uh, there's no words to even describe. He doesn't even use words. And he says, you shouldn't use words either because how could you ever describe God? I know you can describe God. Paul did it for 11 chapters. And that's the God we praise. Not Oh, whatever's in your imagination. So young people, I haven't yelled at you in a while. I haven't had Wednesdays to yell at you. Stay away from people who jump ahead to Romans 11.33 and talk about the unknowableness of God, and they miss out on very knowable things written down by the Apostle Paul here. God is a concrete God, a real God, a tangible God, a personal God. Jesus is a Jewish man. Real things to grab hold of. And then from what you've grabbed held of, hold of, you praise out of that. You don't jump to the loftiness and skip out on theology. Good theology leads to limitless praise. Good theology leads to limitless praise. You guys want to praise God together? Let's do this. Let's read this again. This is just a wonderful song that the Apostle Paul just broke off into. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Today we're going to praise with the Apostle Paul. He was a good theologian, and he's a wonderful praise and worship leader. Three things we're going to track with, with Paul in this song is the mind of God, the plan of God, and the riches of God. Paul says, the mind of God, wow. The plan of God, wow. The riches of God, wow. 
after unpacking lots and lots of good theology. So the first thing I want to talk about is who has known, I'm going to go a little out of order, verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Up in verse 33 it says, the depth, and then jumps down, the knowledge of God. So one thing Paul highlights is the knowledge, the mind. This God, I, I just wrote down his plan. I see it in my own writing. I wrote it out. I know from beginning to end what he's doing. And I look at him and I think, wow, the mind of God. Elijah asked me in the car. We were driving to Ikea yesterday. And he said, Dad, do you know everything? He's four. It's just a funny question. Because up until recently, I probably would say most of everything. I was doing my study in McDonald's, as I do often, and it was just interesting writing this down. Who has known the mind of God? And there's this couple having a back and forth, and this guy says, you know, I think I was about 28 when I first realized that I didn't know everything. Really? It took you 28 years to figure that out? To know that there's something out there that knows far more than you? My dad has the best answer to that. He's kind of a fix-it guy, contractor, can fix anything, so me and my buddies... For all our life, I've always called him for everything. And he can fix just about everything, and he always has an answer. Oh, that's the O-ring on the girder 376C. That, blah, blah. I go, okay, cool. And me and my buddies always tell him, Dad, Mike, you know everything. And he's said the same thing since I can remember when I was a little guy. Son, I know what I know. And his point is, I know this. I, I know this. I don't know anything outside of this. I know what I know. And here's the thing about God. He knows what he knows, and it's everything. Amen that we serve a God that knows it all. Everything. So I was thinking about all the things that God would be bored by because he knows everything. Jeopardy. I just don't, it gets excited about the emotions, but the knowledge aspect of it? <sighs> Are you smarter than a fifth grader? <laughs> any class any of us have ever taken? Up to whatever level of education you have? <sighs> he knows everything. And Paul is just saying, who has known the mind of God? This is amazing. Contrasted with us, very finite, I know what I know people. Just let's walk through what a typical gateway person's life is like and how much we know. I'll be the example. In all the areas of life where we have to go outside of ourselves to bring in knowledge to our situation. I have three kids. Not a single one of them did I birth or understand any part of the delivery process or any part of the growth process or any of that. I had to get doctors and bring them in because I don't know that. Anybody else in that boat? few of you. Education. We're thinking through education now. I'm going to have to bring people in to teach my kids stuff because I don't know it all. Even if we decide to homeschool, I'm going to have to go and buy curriculum from someone who probably spent a lifetime putting this together for me because I don't know. My house, which I love, I did not design. I didn't even know how to buy it without Alan, the realtor, there with every step, helping, highlighting exactly where I need to sign <laughs> with a big X next to it. Okay, Alan, what do I do next? Turn the page, Josh. 
There's another highlight you sign right there. Okay. What's next, Alan? In my house, stuff breaks. The AC breaks. And I don't know what to do. I call someone because I don't have the knowledge to fix it. Me and my wife have an issue. I go outside myself because I don't know how to be a better husband all the time. Matthew, what do I do in this situation? Romans, acting crazy. I don't know what to do. I called six different people on what to do with my kid in a certain situation. Anybody ever been there? We don't know anything. I don't know anything. I'm up here talking to a bunch of very smart people telling you you don't know anything. And God knows it all. Our finances. We don't even do our own taxes. Well, I do it on a program. Did you write the program? <laughs> I planned my own future. Really, you went and put together this mutual fund and took all these, did all the research of all these companies, assembled them, did all that background work, and now you, no. You may play a decent part in your financial planning and future, but we bring in outside wisdom and knowledge all the time because we don't know. Am I saying that we're dumb? No, we are image bearers of God, and he has gifted us all in very unique, special ways. But when we take a step back and really look at our life, we are simpletons, my mom would say. We just don't know. And Paul says, that is not the case with our God. Who has known the mind of this God? Trying to just get a visual of, okay, what does God know? Well, God knows everything. Okay, how do you even start to fathom what that means. So here's what I wanted, I did some research on kind of just storage ability. So how much like information could a human store in their brain? Here's what I came up with. You could store between about 10, not this one yet, and 100 terabytes. So just the human brain, if it was like a hard drive, it could store between 10 and 100 terabytes. What does that mean to us? It's 300,000 hours of television, or turning your TV on and letting it run for 30 years, that's about the map. All that information could be stored in your brain. Could you recall it at any time? Absolutely not. But your human brain and all the connections and all the neurons and everything going on, that's about what it could store. That's a lot. And God knows more than that. So let's group up all of mankind. Let's all join in together and go to battle against God. Here's what I studied, as I was studying human brain and just everything that we could store in our finite human brains. First one says, you could store at least 295 exabytes. Have you guys ever heard that word before? Like four of us. My point is just proved right there. We don't know much. <laughs> if a single star is a bit of information, that's a galaxy of information for every person in the world. Meaning, if we took all our computers, all our pieces of paper, all our journals, every way we have to store stuff, that's what we could store as a civilization. Let's keep going. That is 315 times the number of grains of sand in the world. Thanks. One more time. That is equivalent to every person in the world reading 174 newspapers every day. That's just your ability to store stuff, not even to, like, process. We can't do two things at once. That's just what we could lump in this thing, and then if we joined all together. Let's keep going. Now, here's where it starts to really show that even that, even all of us together, is limited. If we wanted to give a separate name to every star in the universe, we would only be able to store the name of every thousandth star. 
So all of us, all right, let's team up, guys. What are we going to do? We're going to store the name of all the stars. All right, gather up. Asia, Africa, America, South America, everyone, let's get together. Okay, we got this much information. We can only actually store every thousandth star. We got to skip 999. Write that one down. Skip 999. That's all of us together. Is God smarter than that? I sure hope so. And this is the one that just puts it in focus for me. All this is still less than 1% of the information that is stored in all the DNA molecules of a single human being. Meaning, within me, we could not, as a collective civilization world, store everything that makes me me. But God can. So Paul says, who has known the mind of God? Answer, no one. Is that not crazy? That's just storage ability. That's not even like your ability to process or do multiple things at once. God is multitasking right now, and he's fine. He's tending to your hurts. He's dealing with the Malaysian airline. He's dealing with our government. He's dealing with seeds in the garden you just planted. All of it at the same time. And he's not winded or overwhelmed or stressed in any capacity. Just a day in the life of being God. This is good news. This is why we come here and we sing loud because this is good news. What else do we praise here about God? Secondly, we praise the plan of God. Apostle Paul here says, Who has been his counselor? Or in verse 33, it says, The depth of the wisdom of God. So Paul takes a step back and looks at the wisdom of God. Who, how he put all this together. And he says, Who has told God anything? Has God ever gave a listening ear to anyone on how he should make any decision? No. As I was studying, I like to keep the news on my computer, and Obama had this line. He had just finished this big foreign deal, and it said, one sentence summary of the world, according to Obama. We live in a complex world, and it's a very challenging time. Mr. Obama, President Obama, has more information than any of us, access to more people than any of us. And he takes a step back and says, this is complex, and this is challenging. God has never once even taken a step back. His plan has been go from the moment he started this whole thing. The way we see this, it says there, read the end of verse 33. I love these words. One of them is fairly new. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, that's a fun word, inscrutable his ways. What's he saying there? Unsearchable means you can't see the, the end goal of all this. And inscrutable means you can't trace the path. So he just covered everything. He says, we can't look down the corner of time, see what God has planned, and say, I get that. Same page, God. That's how I would have done it. And we can't watch the world around us and trace how God's moving along. The word kind of means that it's, it's, a, it's a footless path. You look and you think, how is God going to connect? We can't see there, and we can't follow his path. We've never given him any advice that he needs. Theologians have called this the decree of God, and there's a great quote here from A.W. Pink. Here's how he calls the decree of God. Is his purpose 
or determination with respect to future things. God did not merely decree to make man, place him upon the earth, and then leave him to his own uncontrolled guidance. Instead, he fixed all the circumstances in the lot of individuals and all the particulars which will comprise the history of the human race from its commencement to its close. Amen. I can't even plan my kid's day from when he wakes up to when he goes down in a coherent, nice way. And God started time, will end time. Eternity begins with him, and it's every single aspect is in his plan. Paul says, who has, what, what being is like this? Question to ask points in your life is, if you could go back, would you change stuff? So if you could go back five years from now, would you change anything? Ten years, fifteen. Every single person in the room would say, I would change a lot. I never would have went out with that person. I would have saved money better. I would have made better decisions as a youngster. I would have not bought that house. I would have. We all have tons of stuff that we look back and say, I should have done that plan differently. God has never played Monday morning quarterback with himself. He's never looked back and kind of twisted his head and thought, hmm, it's all in line with what he's doing. This should like anxiety and angst and stuff you have about the world, this should kind of just soften you. God is doing this exactly like he wants. And the backdrop we have of God is he's a good loving God who went to a cross. So we really just go, praise God. That's what the Apostle Paul's doing here. In particular, this might be tricky for people who are struggling right now. I started by saying good theology leads to limitless praise. Not even circumstances should be able to limit your praise. Right? That's kind of Paul's saying amazing. And how do I know this? Paul is the worship leader here. But he's called on a few people to sing harmonies with him. You see that there's quotes around 34 and 35. He's kind of dipped back into time and pulled out Job, prophet Isaiah, and he's singing lead on all this. So just real quick, I'm going to read something on Isaiah. This is Isaiah. He's a prophet of God. You don't have to turn there. His job was to go to the people of Israel and preach. He was a preacher. He was a church guy. So what would success look like for him? It would be big church, healthy, people love each other, stuff getting done. And here's how God describes Isaiah's ministry to him in Isaiah 6. He says, go and say to the people, here's what your ministry is going to consist of. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? This sounds like the worst ministry job of all time. How long, Lord? He said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants, houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far, far away. Isaiah was a church man, a preacher, a pastor, and his job given to him by God was to preach to people who would never listen, counsel people who were never going to take anything he said and work with it, until eventually God destroyed him. 
And Isaiah is singing harmony in this praise song. Who has known the mind of God? Who has been his counsel? Job. Most people are fairly familiar with the story of Job. If you've never heard, he is the worst story of all time in the Bible. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's living a good life, according to God. They call him righteous. He's living by faith, trusting God, being obedient. And Satan says, you mind if I have at that guy? And God says, go for it. And you read, and it's just the worst story ever. He's kind of having a good time, and this messenger comes to him and says, hey, the storm came, and all your animals are destroyed. Man, tough day. Another guy comes back, hey, a microburst came and just crushed all that property you just rebuilt. What? Another messenger comes, hey, the storm crashed down on your house, and all of your children are dead. What? Fast forward, and then God gives him sores over his whole body. And the most disturbing part of this whole story is it says he takes broken pots and he's like scraping the sores off. And Job is singing harmony on a praise song. It's not about our circumstances. It's about our good theology being put into practice by being celebrators, huh? The art of celebration has nothing to do with circumstances. The Apostle Paul, let me read another one. This is the guy writing it. He's going to describe his life. I've had far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil, hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And on top of all this, Paul says, I have deep anguish in my heart for the churches I'm supposed to be leading. These are the people singing worship in this. They're not the people with the mansions and the good looks and the tight bodies and the perfect kids and the perfect marriages and the perfect circumstances. They are guys who God put through the ringer. And together they sing, praise him. Praise the one who I will never understand, but I trust with all my being. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament, Peter, who's just a knucklehead, Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, he says, so i got to tell you guys something. Satan has asked to sift all of you. So Satan has asked to kind of have his way with you. Job 2.0. You're like, and Jesus says to Peter, but Peter, I've prayed for you. This is the guy who rose from the dead, created the universe, can do all things, and all he offers to Peter is prayer. And that should be enough, according to what we read in Scripture. Satan is asked to have at you guys. He is going to tear into your lives in every possible way. But Peter, I prayed for you. What? If I was God, I would tear Satan a new one. And I would let Peter have a safe, comfortable life like I want my kids to have. And yet Jesus says, I prayed for you. Who has known this plan? 
any aspect of this plan, any story of scripture, you try to take a step back and understand it from human perspective, it's like, what? And you put yourself in their shoes and you're like, and that's the point. God wants us to go, huh, I guess I really have to trust you. And I have to trust you in the areas that exceed my comprehension of how this life should work. And some of you are in deep pain, deep hurt, deep struggles. I'll pray for you. And I'm praying to a God who knows what he's doing, who has set everything in motion so that every step every human being ever makes is leading towards the same goal, his plan being fulfilled. Amen. Ecclesiastes says this, puts a good bow on this section. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything beautiful in its time. Everything beautiful in its time. Every circumstance beautiful in its time. And he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Point being, God's canvas, when it's all said and done, is going to be beautiful. And every aspect of hurt and pain and struggle and trial and tribulation and distress, everything is going to be on that canvas and it's going to be beautiful. And he says he's put eternity in our hearts, meaning we want big answers. Yet he says he doesn't give them to us. He doesn't explain the beginning from the end. He leaves us to sing praise and trust him. Lastly, Paul praises here the riches of God. Let me get back to Romans. This is my favorite part because it gets after why we're here. He says, oh, the depths of the riches. Down in verse 35, Apostle Paul says, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Point being, God owns it all. And everything we have is a gift. By nature, all of us come into this world with religious tendencies. I'd say the two are moralistic theism, there's a God, he wants us to be good and not bad. And, this one's going to hurt a little, prosperity theology. Meaning, if I'm good, God should be rewarding me in the process. One of my favorite pastimes before I had kids was to sit and watch Channel 21 and drink chocolate milk. And I would just, the amount of absurdity that is taught by people claiming to be speaking truth is crazy. Anyone who says, if you do this for God, he will do this for you, has never read the scripture properly. We just see the three guys here, Job, Isaiah, Paul. They're doing what God wants them to be doing. And their lives are a train wreck, purposed by God to be that way. We're all moralistic deists and we are prosperity theologians. How should we view then giving God back stuff? When I was a kid, we used to have Santa's workshop that would come to our schools. Anybody ever do this? They kind of set up shop in your cafeteria, and your parents would give you a set amount of money, and you could go do your Christmas shopping at your elementary school. And they'd have, you know, it was all garbage, and nothing, of it, nothing was good, just trash. And my mom would always give me $40. She'd say, all right, go do your shopping. And I would go buy my mom a present with the money she had just given me, Every year. And my mom has those rings still in her little hope chest. They are little plastic pieces of junk with little plastic ball that's supposed to be an emerald or whatever on top. And she has them all. And she loved when I gave them to her every single time. 
because I wasn't trying to pay her back. My heart overflowed for her, and I was just giving back to her what was already hers. That's how God works. He owns it all. By grace, he shared it all with us. We give back to him what's already his. End of story. Christianity 101. God owns it all. Christian, what's the greatest possession you have right now? I would say Jesus Christ. Good church answer. That's a safe one. And your faith. Your faith gives you complete access to God. Peace with God. Eternity with God. It's your faith. And Ephesians tells us it's by grace we've been saved through faith. And that is a gift, not of yourself, so that no man may boast. Everything about you, very, down to your faith, which got you into God's presence, has been given to you as a gift. Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? Answer, no one. Praise God that, he's, that we're not business partners. That it's not interaction like this. I give him this, he gives me this. It's he's given everything and I get to enjoy Let's wrap it up in this last verse. Verse 36. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I thought long and hard about how to preach this last passage. This is basically the summation of all things. From God, through God, and back to God are all things for his glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a great preaching passage. I could get up here and yell. Everything is going to be God's glory in the end. Everything in this world is going to the same place, the glory of God. But here's where God brought my mind as I was thinking about this. Glory is a given. This statement is a fact. Everything in this universe, every rock, every flower, every animal, every human, every saved human, every unsaved human, every country, every country's leader, every color, every smell, every taste, every food, every delight, every kid, every miscarriage, everything is heading in the same direction. The glory of God. Here's what's mind-boggling, and here's why we we're about to sing loud. Grace is the gift that lets us be friends with this God who has all the glory. Rather than spending eternity as someone giving him glory against our will in hell, grace says this God that Paul cannot keep singing about, that Job can't stop thinking about, that Isaiah can't stop thinking about, that is going to get all glory because everything came from him, through him, and back to him. All glory will be his. He's my friend. And in 10,000 years, I will be in his new heavens and new earth as he's still receiving glory, and I get to be his friend alongside him, his buddy, his pal, Romans says his child, his son, his delight. Is that not crazy? Everything. This, is a, this world's on a treadmill heading the same place. God's glory. It's going to happen regardless. If you're not a Christian in the room, your life is going to bring glory back to God one way or the other. Yet Christians, he has taken off, kissed him, shown him Jesus, 
said, do you trust? We said, yes. Put him back on and said, now you get to enjoy this glorious run with me as my friend. That's why we sing. That's why we praise. How is your canvas of celebration? This had nothing to do with circumstances, nothing to do with the money in your pocket, nothing to do with the health in your body. Everything to do with the God who knows it all, is planning it all, and has invited us in by grace. Let's pray. Father, friend, we love you. We love that this book is about a big God that exceeds our limitations. Both as we step back and look at the grandeur of who you are, but also as we step back and take a look at the the love that you are, the love that would stoop so low as to step down into our world and be punished on our behalf. Invite us into your glorious run on into eternity as your friends. Father, we love you. We praise you imperfectly, but we praise you. Increase our ability to praise you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we get to respond now. We're going to sing. And here's my challenge to us. Let's sing loud.